most of those references would be back to the 150 Psalms. Like him itself is a general reference to a, a song, so it could be used in that way. I think Revelation uses it that way. But when Paul groups those three terms, as we, I quoted from Colossians and Ephesians, and then when the Lord Jesus and his disciples are singing hymns, and Paul and Silas are singing hymns in the prison, what hymns would those be? Well, the natural um, conclusion is they would, the psalms that they grew up singing. And so uh, in the Old Testament Greek translation of the psalms, you have the term hymn and psalm and spiritual songs numerous times in the titles of the 150 psalms. And for that reason, I think in at least most instances, hymn and psalm uh, are synonymous in the New Testament. It's not like a, a different animal. So that's one question. Did you have any questions you wanted to, a different topic maybe? Practically. What I did, we sang two stanzas, and one stanza was kind of somber and um, yeah, we were focusing more on the sin and confession. And then the other one, well, he just went a note higher and we just sang louder and it just was more robust or more. So that's what he did. But it's more than that. So I think I started and I played a scale of notes going up. And that's basically um, the Phrygian mode. And I don't want to get too technical, but I just want to say that the melodies themselves are standalone. Just on their own, they're just a melody. You don't need to have other voices with them to make them work. You just sing them alone. And in that context, well, you can apply a mode and to those sets of notes, and it gives a certain kind of sound. And I just want to demonstrate that um, to you so you can orally hear that. So I played Psalm 51. Um, and this is the Phrygian mode. Or I can start off even a bit differently to kind of get a sense of we're not singing that. I'm just going to use different chords. Suddenly something has just changed. I, I played the same at the same level, but I'm using different chords. These different chords, the first one was minor, kind of has a kind of a, it's kind of darker, major. Something, something, something is a bit more, um, yeah, happier or, so what I did in the first stanza when we sang, I played at this level, the whole song through, and I used more of those kind of minor, darker chords. Then. The second time through, I thought, in order to get you to sing more, I lifted it up a whole tone, so I moved from here, we were in this realm, and I went to this one. And we just went up a bit higher, so everyone just sings a bit more, the voice goes a little bit higher, and since you're standing, it's easier to sing, and, and, to, um, and, and since you have the book in your hand, and, and you're looking upwards, and you're singing a little bit higher, it suddenly takes on a different um, aspect. And by the fact that I'm giving you some major, some positive, some chords that make you want to sing, that all kind of combines together. Um, in the first stanza too, I also, there was a line, um, Oh God, hear my plea, and I just let you sing a cappella. 
on your own. And I sometimes do that as a way to focus on the text. It's not because the organ or the piano broke. Um, it's, it's intentionally done. Also, the sounds that I use. Um, this organ has lots of different sounds. It can get quite loud. It can be quite soft. I make those dynamic or volume or loud or soft choices dependent on what the text is saying. If it's about sin and confession, I'm not singing joyfully about that and I'm not singing loud. You notice as well, when you did sing that stanza, you sang slower. But as soon as I went to that seventh stanza, we started singing a bit quicker. I also encouraged that from my end, but it's led to a different kind of response. And that's just simply, um, I took the time before to look at the text, make those choices, what chords I'm going to play, how fast or slow, what volume, loud and soft, and then I put that together. And the congregation definitely, the group of people here, definitely responds to that. And as accompanists, we need to be conscious of that in our local congregation, that we take the time to go through the song choices, read through the stanzas, and then once we've read through them, make decisions that we practice so that we can quickly and, and smoothly and in good order do that in the worship service. Oh, <laughs> testing. <coughs> um, yeah, I'm just wondering, like with, with that in mind, what do you think about, uh, I, I just noticed that a lot of churches are using piano more and other instruments. Uh, how, how, can you comment on that? So regarding, uh, so it depends first off on context. Not everybody has a church building that has room for a pipe organ, so we have to be accommodating with that. Um, and then the second thing is you also need to have people to play such an instrument. Um, and sometimes, and in this time period too, we have more pianists, which I think that's great. Um, speaking to the piano, um, if you have more pianists and you have people that can play, well, then the piano is kind of the first choice. But in terms of the sound, the tonal resources, I can play the piano loud, I can play the piano soft. I can use different chords, but I, I cannot provide that support on the bass end like I can on the organ. And I'm just, I'm just want to just demonstrate this for a second. Nice grand piano here. And it's not simply about playing loud and soft. So we have this song. So I just try to play it this way. Now, if I give a bit more bass, because I wasn't being fair there, I was keeping my hand a little bit in the middle, but... So it does, it does give you some bass, and you really can bring that out as an accompanist, and you can encourage the singing. Now, at my disposition here, I have a few more choices. Um, and I just want to just show that just to see how the, 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 the range on the, on the instrument. <clears throat> so this is with no, 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 we have this thing called the pedals, it's what I play with my feet, and I can... I can give it more bass. 
So on the low end, I have those big bass notes that really supports congregational singing. So it's not about that I, I play loud, but it's that you have the ability to rest on something. You don't build a house on the sand. You build a house on a footing, on a foundation. The organ has this lower foundation, this footing on which I can place these other notes, the melody notes, the inner notes, and it's on that footing that you sing. So your singing suddenly is a lot more supported by an organ. It's just a natural reality. Um, and the piano accompanying congregational singing is only a 20th century phenomena. It started in North America, and um, it kind of came out of more, I, I think, even evangelical, a rise of evangelical um, um, meetings in, in, in the States where they kind of have a pre-service uh, time of music and singing, which was meant to... Was meant to kind of get the heart ready to hear the message that would be made. And then kind of once that heart has been prepared by singing and music and you play in different ways, you hear the, the gospel message, and then often they would have then the altar call, get people to come forward. So you've kind of, you've set people's hearts for listening, and then you hopefully rouse them to repentance, maybe buy some fire and brimstone, and then they come forward, and, and then that's it. But as reform, we, we, we have a completely different mindset when it comes to, to the worship of God. And in that respect, then, in terms of musical accompaniment, we could also just do away with it altogether and say, you know what? We find it too distracting. Let us just do, let the congregation sing on their own, and then it would be wise to have someone leading that singer, let's say a cantor or a foursanger in, in Dutch, that, that kind of sets the tone, and then we just start singing. And I've heard it done in, in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, works very, very well. Um, and then it takes the musical instruments out of the picture. But as an organist and from my experience, the organ definitely has the natural ability to accompany the singing um, most easily and most well. It does not mean that every time you have a pipe organ, it's a good organ. Not at all. And um, the amount of, let's say, organs that do a good job of doing that are a lot less than you might think. So um, this instrument does a very good job of supporting singing. That's just a few thoughts, sorry. Claude Boiret from Trinity Canadian Church. For Reverend Alfleur, I talked to some people in a break time about you were mentioning the fact we are in that particular culture of today and everybody heard about the so-called hate speech and again Christian churches uh, attack on that subject. Um, let's take example Psalm 139, beautiful psalm, we appreciate it. But there is that part that David called God God, you should punish the wicked, and that part can make us uncomfortable. How can we, in a biblical way, to rid of that discomfort we have, to see the biblical narrative in its context, warfare context, and the language of David, you sp spoke about Christ, and how can we explain that to an unbeliever example? 
Say, you, you have nine songs, but I don't like that song. There's too much hatred. Thank you, Claude. That is a, a good question. And, and um, it, it is, it's a question that would take uh, a long time to answer fully, but I'll try to give you a briefer answer. There's Psalm 139 is a passage that, yes, has that calling down, calling upon God to punish the wicked, to, to, to slay the wicked. Oh, that the Lord would slay the wicked. So it's very strong. Psalm 137 has it, and there's a number of these imprecatory passages. A couple of things to keep in mind when you're interpreting and trying to understand what is actually being conveyed here. The number one thing is you have to remember the covenant context of these psalms. So that means there's a relationship between the writer, usually or often David, and God. There's a, things have been promised between those two parties. We, we're familiar with that, the covenant context. Well, one of the things that God promised, you have to go back to Genesis 12, verse 3, um, to Abram, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. So, this is a, a foundational starting point to grappling with the imprecatory Psalms. When God himself said, I will curse your people who persecute you and who are your enemies. I, God, will curse them. So when David says in Psalm 139, Oh God, punish them, he's actually asking God to do what he had earlier promised. That's the basic thing going on there. He's not asking God to do anything that the Lord hasn't already promised. So that's the starting point. Secondly, um, these prayers for judgment are never about vengeance. I think that's what people think when they, when they read them. They're not about vengeance. They're about justice. Because David has been wrongly trampled, wrongly persecuted, wrongly oppressed. And that's in every one of these passages. Psalm 35, 109, 69, 139. And Israel as a whole, 137. They've been wrongly um, crushed even by these enemies. And then, and then I want you to think a little deeper that these are laments that are fulfilled in Christ. So if you consider that Christ is the one that's described here as the suffering servant and that God the Father will absolutely curse and crush those who hate Christ, so Satan and his followers, then David's prayer is fulfilled in the ultimate final judgment of God, and David's prayer is actually Christ's prayer. And then you, you, you can fast forward a little bit to the end of time when the Lord Jesus comes back, and he's going to separate the goats from the sheep, and there's going to be a judgment, and the goats will go off to eternal damnation. They will be under God's eternal curse. So this, these psalms of imprecation, they're about seeking justice from God on account of God's covenant promises and ultimately it's centered on God's salvation in Christ. It's, it's Christ calling out for that judgment. And when we sing in that line, then it takes the focus off of our, like we're not calling down uh, curses just upon people who are giving us a hard time at work or upon people we don't like in politics or something like that. This is serious business. These are God-haters. These are actually enemies of Christ. Another thing to think about when we sing the Psalms of Imprecation 
you know, in the Western world where we have the peace we have currently, although there's, there's signs that it's under pressure, um, it's, it's, we find it hard to sing because of this, the so-called tolerance that's all around us. But if you were in North Korea or a Christian in China or a Christian in a Muslim country where you cannot even hold a Bible without being thrown in jail, then these psalms calling for God to exercise his just wrath upon those who hate Christ, they make a lot more sense. So I would say this to you, brothers and sisters, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're still having this hard time singing them for yourself, because you, you, you think, well, I don't want to wish this on anybody, sing it for the church that's being persecuted. Sing it with them in your mind. Sing it with those who hate Christ in your mind. Those who hate him with a, 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 an undying hatred. And we know that they are, they're, they're there, right? The, the reprobate. They're the ones that are the ultimate receivers of that curse. So I hope that helps a little bit. There's a handy book coming out next summer, God willing, called uh, Christ Psalms, Our Psalms Study Resource. And there's a, a longer section in there that will maybe help you with that. It's a shameless pitch on the book I'm editing, I know, but, you know, if you don't pitch your own book, you know, you, you, don't, you don't sell, so. Thanks for the question, Claude. I hope that gives you something. Okay. Ron Bremer from Redemption. Um, Brother Youngsman, you mentioned that uh, in your um, estimation, that the Genevan tunes um, are all singable. I think you said the claim that they're unsingable is untrue. And yet, uh, there are other opinions. So I would suggest that your position is also an opinion. If we consider, and I know uh, Reverend Hofler mentioned Tim Nienhuis, he's published a lot of uh, commentary on the various tunes of the Psalms and has suggested that there are many other tunes that can be used with the psalms without any changes to the wording of the psalms. And I would uh, like to uh, suggest that we should perhaps consider that. Um, I know, uh, for example, that Synod Edmonton 2019 has also entertained that idea. I'd like to see, I'd like to hear rather your opinion on that. Thank you. So regarding the psalm melodies, I think part of the issue that they're challenging to sing or even considered to be unsingable has to do with the fact that we don't sing them through as they were originally intended. We are very much, and I kind of, in my presentation, song selections, they apply often to certain parts of the liturgy, a song of praise in the beginning, maybe a, a something else after the law. but. Certainly, in the, the early years following the Reformation, they just sang through all the psalms in a cyclical fashion. Not necessarily in order, but there were psalm singing tables, and over the course of a half a year, you would sing through the whole Psalter. So you'd sing through it two times a year. Additionally, so that's as a church community. Additionally, psalm singing was also, um, they would sing for one hour a day in Geneva. The school children would spend one hour singing. So there was... Um, it was very, very familiar. And I think some of the challenges that can arise from melodies in our psalm book um, are largely, in large part due to uh, un 
being simply unfamiliar. We just don't know them. And we don't practice them. It's something that's also learned that way. Now, if we were to be singing them, and thankfully at Christian school, the children do learn to uh, sing this, the melodies of a book of praise. That way we are also kind of setting up future success for congregational singing. Kids are learning these melodies, and true, some of them can be hard, some of them can be challenging, but we get to know them, and hopefully a minister can work through and select them. Now, addressing your question about other melodies to, without changing any of the, of the words, I think um, th- there has to be uh, discernment when it comes to melodies themselves. Which melodies are you choosing to apply to a song text? Maybe it works. Maybe it, you don't have to change anything. You just, you know, have the text, shove in the melody, and sing it. But melodies have um, attachment to other text, or can have attachment to other text. So a melody, for example, like in Christ alone, can work with some of the psalms, some some of the uh, the, the, the rhymings. Now. As soon as you hear that melody, you right away think, in Christ alone, that, that melody just, that's what it's about. But then you start singing other words. So I think there has to be wisdom and discernment if melodies are going to be changed or, let's say, added to a, a psalm compendium in an up, upcoming psalter, then it has to be done thoughtfully and carefully that the melodies themselves don't have association to other texts. If we were to sing, let's say the melody, Joy to the World, would work with one of our texts. As soon as we hear that, we ready to think, oh, Christmas, joy to the world. But no, we're singing, maybe we're singing um, Psalm 110, and it talks about Christ, and we think it can, it can work somehow. But I think we have to be careful which melodies we choose to attach to those psalms. Is it wrong to do? I don't think so. I think, personally speaking, I would like to see the psalm, the Geneva melodies, still retained as a collection. I think in North America, we're the Canadian Reformed Churches is the only federation of churches that has it as one section, but it doesn't mean you couldn't sing those same psalms with other melodies in a, in a psalm compendium or something like that. But I think if you go to other countries in the world, Japan, Hungary, Poland, um, Brazil, there are many churches of other tribes and nations singing these very psalm melodies in their own language. And I think they also demonstrate that it does have a universality to them and it's also applicable um, in, this, in this time period as well. Just some thoughts. Thank you. Um, Arjen Vrugdenheel from uh, Chatham. I have a question for uh, Reverend Holt Fleur. Um, well, first of all, I appreciate it. Uh, toward the end, you said about hymns, um, you know, um, you kind of argued for having hymns that very deliberately take New Testament um, motifs from Scripture and, um, and, and do something good with them. And uh, I really appreciate that. I think uh, a lot of problems with hymnody is that we have not uh, deliberately worked on text, but just picked songs that happen to be popular and looked if they weren't too bad. So, uh, yeah, thank you for that. I think that's a great project to uh, encourage people to work on. Um, I do have um, a more critical question. Um, there is a, uh, an important distance and difference between us and the Old Testament uh, church, of course. Um, and yeah, there's a lot to, that can be said about that. I, yeah, I, I would just uh, point to, say, for instance, Colossians 2, which says, you know, 
things are a shadow of things to come, a substance is Christ. And I, I think that doesn't only apply to the ceremonies of the Old Testament. Part of the language used in worship, um, the things it refers to, like the promised land, uh, were shadows of the, the higher spiritual reality that we now have in Christ. Given that, is it, um, is it justified to say that these Old Testament songs with their old covenant history ought to be the backbone and that um, singing about the greater historical events in Christ is merely to complement them? I, I would like to shift that emphasis a little more than, uh, than you did. So if you could comment on that. Okay. Um, to answer your question, I, I would say yes. But I could explain a bit. Um, yeah, the Psalms do speak of Christ. And in a foreshadowing way, yes but also in a, in a way that is not comparable to the, to the um, ceremonies of the law that Paul speaks about in Colossians 2. Right? Like there's, we all agree that there's um, those, those elements of the ceremonies of the tabernacle and temple pointed to specific uh, acts that Christ would fulfill, and he did, so therefore they're no longer needed. Now the Psalms, they speak more to the, the work of Christ at its, yeah, at its heart, its, 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 its theological heart, I think. And that's why I, I think they, they stand, you know, somebody has quipped, well, they, like literally in our Bibles, they're, they're in the middle of the Bible. Like if you open your Bible, you turn to the Psalms, and that's just sort of a uh, providential happenstance. But there is something to the idea that the Psalms straddle both testaments, if I can say it that way. Like, they're, they're, they're not so rooted in the Old Testament that um, they are hard to, to take over into the New Testament. And the evidence for that is the, the, the apostles, the Lord Jesus, and the church after them sang those psalms for up until the 1800s. Um, it does take, I, I will admit, I think anyone will admit, we have to do a bit more work in understanding the Christological nature of the Psalms, but because God has given them as songs for the church to sing, and, and, and there is no parallel gift in the New Testament era to update or to replace the, song, the Psalms, I take that also as significant that the Psalms retain their pride of place. Um, and then, yeah, so, so they're not, uh, they're, 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 the Psalms are quite special. And, uh, you know, maybe I could add this by way of showing that, um, that the Psalms even add a dimension that, uh, to, to New Testament revelation. Let me give an example. Like, nowhere or very, very few times in the Gospels do we get a glimpse into what Jesus was feeling thinking while he's enduring the wrath of God. But it's everywhere in the Psalms. We get his, the internal thoughts of David are actually the internal thoughts of Christ. So to know the heart of Christ, the, 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 what he was going through, his emotional experiences actually, you have to turn to the Psalms. So I think there's a, there's, 
that all adds to the unique character of the Psalms, which is why I think they should retain their priority. But thanks for the question. Thank you. My name is Arian de Visser. I'm from Hamilton. I uh, have a question for both of you. Is that allowed? So, you started, Reverend Holtzor, your speech by saying you're not an anti-hymn guy, and you ended by saying, I'm not an anti-hymn guy, but I'm a Psalms first guy, and I hope you all agree with me. Um, how about we say this? We are Psalms first people, but we are also pro-hymn. Could you find yourself in that statement? And more or less along the lines of what uh, Arjen Vreugdenhild said. I, I just feel that the New Testament, uh, redemptive historically speaking, as Christian church, we have to sing the praises of, of the triune God and what Christ has done as the angels do in heaven, if you read in, heaven, in Revelation. So for me, it's just not enough to say I'm, I'm not anti-him. I would like it to be a, a bit more positive. And then my question for um, Martin Youngsma, um, following up of, on the question by uh, Brother Bremer. Yeah, you hear quite a bit these days about the Genevan Psalms melodies, that we are used to them because we all learned them in, in Christian school. So. It's an acquired taste for us, but we are a bit strange. Uh, for people in general and for the younger generation, it just doesn't work. Um, it's too foreign. That's a, a word you hear often about mm. the Genevan melodies. They are too foreign. Um, it's like in English. I was at the Blessings Music Conference earlier this year, and someone made this statement. For people today to try to learn to sing the Genevan melodies is like for an Englishman to to try to speak Chinese. So I'd like your professional evaluation about the Genevan melodies. Are they so foreign to our culture today that we put ourselves in a corner if we are still trying to, to sing them? Um, to use a technical terminology, they are modal, and people today are used to tonal music. So what, what do you think about that? Thank you. Your question's answered. Uh, my, my answer could be brief. I, like, I, I'm, I'm fine to be called a pro-hymn guy. Uh, I guess I phrased it that way um, because sometimes I've been called an anti-hymn guy, so I wanted to say I'm not an anti-hymn guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's lots of, there's, um, in, our, in our culture, if I just look at the wider Christian world, uh, which doesn't have an appreciation for psalm singing, and it's just kind of waking up to it, like in the evangelical Christian world. Uh, I was at the Sing Conference, I know some of the others here were at the Sing Conference in, in Tennessee last, uh, last year, where psalms was featured by the Gettys, which was a real, really nice thing to see. And, you know, many of the evangelical believers walking around were like, oh, that's it. That's a kind of cool idea. We should sing the Psalms? I mean, it was just like new. So their whole world around us is pro-hymn. And, you know, 
So I just, if you, if, you want, if you want me to be known by something, I'd like to be known as the pro-psalm guy, but I'm not into him. So that's kind of why I characterize it like that. But you and I can go for coffee and, and, and talk about pro-hymns all, all, all day long, no problem. Over to you, Mark. Okay. So my professional opinion, um, the melodies, they were, they were um, composed over, I'm just going to share a little bit of history because I think it really helps to understand these melodies and the, the intention of them. So the melodies were composed uh, f- starting in 1539 till 1562, so a 23-year period. It involved a number of different composers. Um, Guillaume Franck was in the, in the early tradition, or in the early uh, version of Psalter, um, and, but the most well-known gentleman was Louis Bourgeois, and he, he wrote a lot of them, and um, he also, so the well-known um, Psalm 134 uh, melody and, and a, a lot of other ones, but he also changed a number of melodies. He changed a number of melodies, and that ended up him up in prison. And John Calvin pleaded that, please let him go. He, he, all he did was change the melodies. And he even told you in the preface of the book that he was doing that. Why? In order to make the melodies more singable. So th- the melodies themselves um, were crafted by, by different gentlemen, but they also experienced a time period of shifting in a way that the congregation would be enabled to sing them easily. So the intention was, right from the get-go, that untrained, unmusical, even illiterate people could sing these melodies, but it required practice. It required learning. And so in the churches in Geneva, they had a cantor who would teach these melodies to the congregation. And that was done uh, in the early days by children. So children at school would learn how to sing. Then in church, they would sometimes sing before the service melodies that would be coming up. So the congregation could familiarize themselves with these tunes. And then the congregation, once they started feeling comfortable, could sing them. So there's a process of learning that's involved. And I think what challenges us in our day and age, and a lot of people, um, young people especially, it's, it's a sound world, it's a style, if you will, that seems so distinctly foreign to us. We live in a culture that is bombarded by pop music. And I mean pop music just in a very general sense. You walk into the supermarket, you walk into the grocery store, you walk into any store, restaurant, there's almost always some kind of beat-based music that has a very simple rhythmic pattern of, let's say, three or four chords, and that's just the way it is. So that's what we're used to. So we have, our minds are musically dumbed down constantly. And then suddenly we have these melodies that were composed in a way that would capture the, 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 the melodic weight and dignity of the biblical text. And they did so in a manner that was not in the, the popular style of the time period using major or minor. Da, 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 is, a, is a major scale. Da, 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 minor scale, natural minor. So... Instead, they said, no, we want to actually compose in a way that's going to kind of tie us back to a church music tradition. So they wanted, and Calvin, and I quoted this from his preface, he said there had to be a difference between the music sung in the home, in his opinion, and the music that was sung, the Psalms, that is, in church before God and his angels. There's a a, a stylistic difference. And I think it's that stylistic difference that challenges us because we are constantly being dumbed down by all this other music 
and sound in our vehicles and restaurants, uh, working, job site, you name it. And so suddenly we come into church and we hear this melody and it just, it's foreign to us because we haven't um, been maybe encouraged to, to see that there is a profound difference when it comes to the worship of God. And when you have melodies that really want to fit within that kind of framework, I think um, it, it's something that needs to be taught, and that's what was taught in the early days of the Psalter. And I think that's something that we need to continue to teach today. And I think as parents, on the home front, we have an important duty to, to sing with our children, sing the songbook of the church in your, in your family devotions. Get them familiarized with them. At school, um, the children learn to sing as well as some of these melodies. And at church, and if the home, church, and school are all working together, I think then we can kind of create a, a culture of also church music that fits within the framework of the Reformed Worship Service. And in that regard, I believe that Geneva melodies really do that well. But it's not natural. It's foreign to us in that sense. It has to be learned and taught. Richard Feenstra from uh, Grassy. Um, just the uh, comment, are we painting ourselves in a corner? Um, just a quick response to that, if I may. Um, we are Christians set apart in this world, so I don't think we should be ashamed of being set apart in the world. Just food for thought. Um, that said, you explained, Martin, how historically the church did not sing, uh, at least not the pew person. Um, and so all the melodies were designed to train the people to sing. And then in the last 30, 40 years, we can see how in very, um, in particular, the worship music has made huge inroads um, also into our own homes today. And, and, and like you said, you were just talking about how we've been inundated with music. Uh, we've become very accustomed to music in a, in a very different way. Does that change our approach in how we are to understand and learn the way we sing in church? I think it can influence, so from the one hand, at least we were used to hearing music, so that's, 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 that's one thing that's, that's positive, but the fact is we don't make that natural distinction to we're worshiping God, it's him who's the object of our worship, it's not my likes, it's not my styles, and so I think then we have to even be pr more proactive in offering opportunities to teach songs of the church to people, be it in a workshop fashion, be it at school fashion, and I think we have to be more intentional about it. We have to, um, yeah, set, set it by example to our children so that they know, okay, we do this for this reason, not because we just want to be different, we want to have our own little clean and reformed kind of corner thing. No, we, we do this because we believe that in the worship of God there has to be a, a certain dignity and style. And the approach to learning it um, I think also we have to be more of a singing people. Uh, we, we don't sing as much as I think even our previous generation, and I think we have to be encouraged to sing, to stand up, to learn how to have a good posture when it comes to singing, 
and that it's not just, well, I, I can play an instrument a bit, and that's fine. We have to be encouraged and taught to sing. And I think if, we are, if we're taught to sing, and we're taught to sing the melodies of the church, I think going hand in hand, um, I think we can intentionally also promote singing that way, but it, it, it just won't happen on its own. It will just, I'm not sure if that kind of addresses your question, but... Dave Chance, Addercliff. Um, not really a question. I'd like to thank you both for your speech, but there's a one comment I could make and could be helpful, maybe. I don't know, but um, a lot of young families that we talk to, right, to teach the children how to sing, and some of the Genevans are hard to sing. And there is a, our sister Jane Ostra from Dunville Church. She did all 150 psalms on YouTube, and you can try listen to them and use that as a guide. Mothers do that, fathers use that to help train the children to sing. So it's just a comment, something that is a helpful tool. Thank you. Thank you. It is a question, but it might not be a small one. Garrett Boss from, from Guelph. Um, Reverend Hopefully, you mentioned two Psalm First churches, the uh, OPC and the URCNA. Um, they have taken, from a songbook perspective, a different direction. Um, can you see, practically and theoretically, uh, a way forward toward greater unity from a songbook perspective? So. No would be a very easy and quick answer, but I'm hoping that there's a bit more. Am I on? Yeah, okay. Um, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. I, I, I believe that to be true. When you go back to the early 2000s, uh, both federations had struck a committee. There's a joint songbook committee at one point. And there had been agreement to work toward as a common songbook. From uh, the Canadian Reform side, we were not opposed to adding more than the, the uh, 150 Genevans. Like we, we, had, we had stipulated we'd like to keep the 150 Genevans, but we could add more to it. So there was certainly flexibility there. And with regarding the hymns, that was all, um, that, that, could, that was all open for discussion. So, yeah, I think you know what happened, right? Uh, the, yeah, what did happen? Sad to say, our URC brothers pulled out of that arrangement and um, shortly thereafter joined with the OPC and formed a joint songbook and they've got the Trinity Psalter. So, you know, in the short term, I don't, I don't think there's a will, to be quite frank with you, from the URCNA side to work with us. If there had been a will, they would have done so at that time. Um, we remain from our side, at least nothing's changed as far as I know from the early 2000s, we'd be prepared to uh, look at a songbook that contains the 150 psalms that we have now, plus possibly other renditions of those songs. 
to other tunes, as Martin was saying, and then work out the hymns selection. So, yeah, without wanting to say, come down hard on anybody, but I, I think somewhere the URC brothers lost the will to work with us on a common songbook. Not trying to offend any of the URC brothers, that's, that's, but that is just how I see it. Thank you. Uh, on behalf of us all, Brother Paul Cooper and Lumpa, thank you very much for your uh, introduction and your answer to questions.